things go when you're making plans to visit your family, or perhaps even worse, when your family is making plans to visit you. When there's a big trip going on and you're going to be arriving in a couple of weeks' time to visit family, you, you need to send out all the special requests and requirements beforehand, right? You need to let the family know all the things that have changed since the last time you came to visit them. You, you're needing to let them know that, ah, you've become a vegan, perhaps, and uh, you don't eat meat anymore. Or, or you want to make sure that they uh, set up the bed for you in just the right place. You want to make sure that the bed is set along just all the right you know, energy lines that they flow in just the right manner for you. Um, you want to make sure that somebody from the family is going to fetch you from the airport because you don't want to Uber to, the, to where you're staying. You, you require an 8 a.m. wake-up call. You want to make sure that they, there's no noise after 9.30. Uh, once you've gone through all that list of requirements for your family, your family may well suggest to you going to the nearest Holiday Inn or Airbnb. Now, we're just about done with uh, Second Corinthians, we've got maybe two more sermons to go this week, and um, we're going to. This is this is going to look beautiful. Let's see if that makes a difference. So high tech stuff here. So we've probably got two sermons left from Second Corinthians. We're pretty much done, and and this week we're going to see that Paul lets the church know that he's on the way. He wants to, uh, he's letting them know that he's going to be in Corinth in a couple of weeks' time. And he wants to reassure them that unlike you and I, when we visit family, that he's not going to be a burden on this church when he visits. He's hopeful that when he arrives, there's not going to be any big disappointments, that they're not going to be disappointed with him, and that he's not going to be disappointed with them. It's like when you arrive to visit your family and you go, oh, that, that bed's a little bit small. Uh, or you open the fridge and you go, oh, you've only got skim milk. Might as well just pour water on your cornflakes. There's all those kind of disappointments. And Paul wants to make sure that there's going to be no disappointments when he arrives in Corinth. He also says, I hope this isn't going to turn ugly like it did last time I visited. Um, some of you may remember the last, I don't know, Christmas dinner you had with family where it ended up being a political debate at the, kitchen ta at the, at the lunch table. And so Paul's just letting the church know, I'm coming, I'm not going to be a burden, uh, let's hope there's no disappointments, and let's certainly not get into any fights when we get together. But mixed in with that, Paul also sets out some of what his motivations in being an apostle have been to the Corinthian church. And he sets out this morning for us three core defining drives of what has made him a pastor, of what it is that has uh, got him investing into this church. And so I want, you, I want us this morning to look out for these three things where Paul says, I will spend for you. I will do everything to strengthen you. And it's all been to serve you. Those three things. Now, in, in one sense, this is going to be very reflective of my role as pastor of Waterfall Baptist Church. I mean, it's our AGM this morning. We've sent the church reports around. I hope you've got them and managed to read through a couple of them. Uh, part of what an AGM is about is that it's meant to be an opportunity to look back on the past year and assess. To go, what have we accomplished? What have we done? What have we achieved? And there's perhaps even in an AGM a bit of a moment to assess the pastor. So you can get or, or get out your, your crit sheets this morning and mark off a couple of things. How has our pastor done this year? Has he achieved him to achieve? Is he up to the task here? 
But as much as there's Next week, we'll see when Paul writes uh, halfway through chapter 13, he says, you need to examine yourselves. And so it's not just check out the pastor and get a crit sheet on him, see how, how he's done, but we need to examine our own hearts. And so as much as you're going to examine me and see if I match up, you need to examine yourselves this morning and see not just the things that are meant to be driving the pastor, but what are the drives within us as members of the church. After all, we're all called to be priests before God. And so these motivations should be found in each of us as we pour ourselves out for the gospel, as we seek to strengthen those around us, and as we look for opportunities to serve. So with that in mind, if you have a Bible, won't you turn to 2 Corinthians and we're going to read from chapter 12, from verse 11, and we're going to read into chapter 13 this morning. So chapter 12, from verse 11, 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, I have made a fool of myself, but you have driven me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in any way inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, miracles, they were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me for that wrong. Now, I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all... Children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may. I have not been a burden to you. Yet, oh, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery, right? Did I exploit you through any of the men that I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we, act in, did, did, did we not act in the same spirit and, and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as, you, want, as you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and who have not repented of their impurity, their sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we live with him to serve you.
I read into chapter 13 there because sometimes I find that the chapter divisions in the Bible are in the wrong place. Obviously, every word is inspired by God. This is God's word to us. But the chapter divisions were added later, and they were just added to, to help you find the place. We could have started this morning by me saying, hey, won't you go and find that place in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, I'm coming to visit you. And we just spent ages paging to find the right spot. And so some bright spot came up with the idea of chapters and verses. But sometimes they're not quite in the right place. And I think today, my, my focus is going to be from verse 14 of chapter 12, all the way to chapter 4, or verse 4 of chapter 13. And you can see there's three paragraphs, and those three paragraphs are linked by a repetition of the same thing. Each time, Paul says, I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to see you. And within each of those passages, he, or the, those paragraphs, he, he tells us what I just said earlier. I'm not going to be a burden. We don't want this to get ugly. I don't want this to turn into a fight. Uh, instead, I've come to, um, to, to, to pour myself out for you. I've come to strengthen you. And my intention is to serve you. But that being said, let me just make a couple of quick comments on that first paragraph where Paul talks about, oh, I've, I've made a fool of myself before you. Uh, let me be clear that Paul does not have an inferiority complex. So he's just spent the last couple of pages defending his ministry. And there's a sense in which he's regretting having to do it. But you remember, of course, what his defense of ministry has been. His defense has been all about his weakness, about his sufferings, about how he said, I'm just a basket case. And he says here, man, I wish I didn't need to have say, said anything like this to you. In fact, he says, you guys should have been the ones defending me. You know me. And yet what you've done is you've compared me to your super apostles and called me inferior. And the reason that they've labeled Paul as being inferior to their super apostles is that Paul doesn't brag enough. Paul doesn't seem to quite have that glamour of vibrant success. And so the Corinthians had ranked their leaders and they placed Paul at the bottom of the list, at the bottom of the ranking. And Paul says, you know what, I'm happy with that because I'm nothing. And that's not Paul showing false humility. That's Paul just repeating what he's been saying right through the book of, of, of 2 Corinthians. Remember where he says, I'm, I'm just a jar of clay. Your super apostles, they think they're jewel-encrusted treasure chests. But me, I'm a jar of clay. And Paul really just saying, I'm nothing. Christ is everything. It's Jesus in me. And so he's almost as if he's saying, if I'm nothing, but I'm not in any way inferior to your super apostles, what does that make them? <laughs> well, it makes them less than nothing, doesn't it? They questioned and challenged Paul's right to call himself an apostle. How can Paul truly be an apostle? And Paul says, come on, you were there. You've seen, you've heard, you know. And he says, you saw the miracles that were performed. Performed not in my name, but performed in God's name. And not only did he see the miracles, but you've seen my perseverance. You've seen my endurance. Now, what's kind of interesting is that a lot, Paul has said a lot about being an apostle. This is the first time that he's made references to signs and wonders as a means of authenticating his apostolic ministry. Now, it is true that signs and wonders do authenticate the ministry of God, but it's also true that we can't rely on signs and wonders alone. 
In, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this. He says, I want to warn you against the man of lawlessness who will perform signs, wonders, and miracles. And so there is a sense in which um, the signs and wonders and miracles which God's people perform, or which are performed by God's Spirit, can be replicated, duplicated, counterfeited by workers of the enemy of the gospel. And so one of the reasons why Paul has not made a big deal of signs and wonders and miracles is that although they do to some extent authenticate the ministry, it's not the primary means by which we authenticate the ministry of the Word of God. And so we're delighted when we hear of signs, wonders, and miracles, but just the fact that there are signs and wonders and miracles that take place doesn't necessarily mean that this is all from God. And so that's why Paul says, that's why I'm not making a big deal of it. Yep, I performed signs and wonders, or signs and wonders were performed through me by the power of God, but I'm not making that the big deal. And then he says, and now you say that I've treated you badly, that I've treated you as an inferior church. Why? Because I haven't charged you money? Really? That's the reason that you're most upset by me? And it seems to be that these Corinthians were thinking exactly that. The super apostle demanded money. Paul demanded nothing. The super apostles therefore must be from God and, and Paul is just some counterfeit guy. And so Paul says, I'm sorry that I just didn't have the heart to rip you off. Okay, from there, Paul goes into this thing of, I'm coming to visit you. This will now be his third visit to them. The first visit was when he actually started the church, and then he'd left and gone to Ephesus, and there'd been a major issue. You remember that there was that issue with that uh, guy and his stepmother and what was going on there? And Paul had had to come from Ephesus back to Corinth for a very short but very unpleasant church discipline meeting to deal with this guy and his sin. Paul has now left, he's gone back to Ephesus, and now he's halfway there, he's on his way back to Corinth, a couple of weeks away from his third visit to them. And he says, this third visit will be the same as the previous visits. I didn't take anything from you in those last couple of visits, I'm not going to take anything from you now. I'm not going to be a burden on this church. I'm not coming for your money. I'm not going to charge you. It's going to cost you nothing. And I know that when you have great Aunt Agatha coming to stay for you, for a day or two it's fine. But when she stays for a week or two or, or a month or two, it begins to get a little awkward, doesn't it? The costs begin to mount as she begins to demand more and more things out of your fridge and freezer. There's a discomfort measure that the longer Aunt Agatha stays in your house, the less time you can wander around the house in your underwear. So yeah, it gets awkward, doesn't it? And Paul says, it's not going to be like that with me. I'm not going to be a burden to you. It seems to me that the way Paul did ministry was that when he arrived in Corinth to start the church, he didn't arrive and then the next week say, now listen, I'm here starting a church. I need you to fund me. I need you to give me a salary. It seems that what happened was that Paul would be sent to Corinth from, from Athens. And the church at Athens would pay for Paul while he was establishing the church in Corinth. And that when Paul went to Ephesus to start a church in Ephesus, it was the church in Philippi that sent money to help him keep going and to get the church running in Ephesus. So it seemed that other churches were supporting Paul while he was starting new churches. And when that didn't happen, Paul had a side job as a leather worker. He was able to repair tents and fix boots and whatever else that needed to be repaired. So it seems that Paul did his very best to not draw money from the church that he was currently working in. 
And certainly that was the case at Corinth. Um, he's not wanting anything from Corinth because he's, he just doesn't want the Corinthians to start thinking that maybe in some way Paul is a con artist and he's just after our money. And so Paul says here, I'm not after your possessions. I want you. And that seems to be the very opposite of these super apostles. Because they were more interested in what they could get in cash than they were about the people. And while pastors like me earn a living from the church, there are plenty of so-called men of God who would view their ministry as nothing more than a means to feather their own nest and get wealthy. Paul does say in 2 Corinthians that that he, as an apostle and as pastors, that, that we should have the right to earn an income from the church that we're part of. Um, Paul says you should pay for the guy who's, who's working hard amongst you. Just Paul himself chose not to exercise that right. But there is a difference, I think, between earning a living from the church that you're part of and using the church that you're part of to feather your own nest and enrich yourself at the expense of others. It gets unsavory when in the eyes of the pastor it becomes more about the money than it does about the members. Some of you might have been following a little bit of the United States politics in this last week. It's been pretty horrendous some of the stuff that's come out. There's a gentleman by the name of Jerry Falwell. Jerry is the self-appointed Pope of the evangelical world. You and I were evangelicals, just means we believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves. And Jerry set himself up as, as our king and priest. And now, I certainly don't, I've never considered Jerry to be anything like that in my life. Um, but he set himself up in that position. Many people, in the, in, certainly in the United States, have put him in that position. And certainly a lot of non-Christians have considered Jerry to be the the voice of the evangelical church. It's kind of unfortunate because he's not the best voice at all. Uh, five years ago, he came out very publicly to endorse Donald Trump as president of the United States. He has been um, one of Donald Trump's firm supporters for the last four years. Um, and uh, and he's, he's in fact part of Donald Trump's spiritual advisory board. The last few weeks have been rather unfortunate for Jerry, though. There have been a couple of photographs that have appeared on, um, on social media that have portrayed him in a bit of a negative light. <coughs> but where things really went bad is that this past weekend, it was revealed that his wife had had an affair, a six-year-long affair, with a pool boy down in Florida. And now it's come out that it's possible that there's been a second affair that his wife has had. And then what's been accused is that it's not just that his wife has had an affair, but that Jerry was encouraging it and was in some way part of it. That the pool boy down in Florida has been sending messages to Jerry and it's just, it's been very ugly. Now, now the, the point, the, the thing that I'm trying to get to here is not, the, I mean, the affair itself and what's gone on there is just nasty and, and, and horrendous. But here's the thing. Jerry, Jerry's the principal of, of the biggest Christian university in America. And what's happened as a result of all this unsavoriness and affairs is that he's resigned from his position and he's getting a payout of 10 million dollars 10 million that's 160 million rand to walk away 
And I just, uh, th there's all sorts of things that are just wrong <laughs> with this picture. Uh, aside from the affair and, and, and everything that's gone on, uh, gone on in that, it's the money as well that just adds to the nauseousness of this whole thing. When someone's gone into ministry and it appears that his primary reason for doing that is so that he can walk away a super wealthy man, just leaves me a little ill. What Paul does, he uses a family illustration to set out what he means by all of this. And what he says is, your kids, the kids should not be paying for the parents. It's the other way around, right? And, and I mean, I think we all get it, right? None of us had children in order to make a quick buck. Mark and Jackie didn't sit there and think, you know, we need some more money in our family. How are we going to get some money? Let's have another baby. That'll bring money into the home. No, it tends to be the other way around. An added baby tends to mean money going out, right? It costs us. None of us had kids in the expectation that we get money out of them. Although I am somewhat hopeful that at least one of my children will become a millionaire or at least marry a millionaire and I'll be able to re retire in some kind of comfort. We know that there's something wrong when you send your five-year-old out to go and work in the coal mines in order to bring in an income into the family. We've all got something within us that, that just runs against the idea of child labor and the exploitation of kids. It's wrong when parents have children and then sell them off. I mean, there was that big uproar a few years ago when, when Madonna was accused of buying a child in Malawi. It's not how it's meant to go as parents. The point is that parents are meant to invest in their kids and raise the kids to maturity. And when the kids leave the home, I don't think there's too many of us who present them with a bill when they leave and say, now listen, this is the cost of your education, and this is how much you owe us for all the food you ate, and here's the itemized expenses of all those nappies that you used up when you were a baby, and in fact, here's the invoice for the very first scan while you were still in the womb. We don't do that. We don't expect our kids to pay us. It's the other way round. And, and Paul says, I feel like I'm your dad and you're my kids. And so I'm not in this to get money out of you. It's the very opposite. I will gladly spend everything for you. Another translation says, I'll spend everything for your souls. And it's more than just I'll spend, but it's to expend. Paul is saying, I'm going to drain myself for your sake. I'm going to spend and be spent for you. Paul's not just saying I'm going to take some money out of my pocket and pay for a place to stay while I'm there. Paul is really saying I'm willing to give up health and comfort and my energy and my time and everything for your sake and for your benefit and for the benefit of your souls. And so I've got to examine myself for a moment this morning. I certainly don't want to be a burden on our church. I'm not hoping for a $10 million payout when I walk away here one day. But I've got to ask myself the question, will I spend and be spent for the church? And to be honest, I'm not sure. I mean, of course, yes, I'd love to be able to say yes, of course I will. But there are so many things that we spend ourselves and, and, and pour ourselves into. You've got to examine yourself, right? I'm sure that none of you want to be a burden on the church. And yet the same question must be asked, will you spend and be spent 
for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of these people and for the sake of their souls. What will you give for each of the people that make up the body here at Waterfall Baptist Church? Are we willing to sacrifice for one another? We pour ourselves into so many things. We spend what we have on all sorts. We, we pour ourselves into our work and we spend on our hobbies. And we, we pour ourselves into our pleasures and our leisures and our addictions. We invest energy and time and effort into all sorts of things. But will we pour ourselves out for the gospel? Sometimes I feel that as, as people in the church around the world... Uh, we're quite happy to pour ourselves out for our pleasures and save the last few drops for the gospel. And I'm not suggesting that you become a missionary to Tibet this morning, but that we begin to change the way we view how we do things in our work. Do you see your job as an opportunity for the gospel or is it just a means for, to, to, for an income? Are you seeing your work as a means to advance the kingdom of God? And that's not to say that you need to become one of those annoying people at the office who slips evangelistic tracts into everybody's hands and that you run a Bible study every morning and every afternoon and prayer meetings at lunchtime. But rather that you change the way that you view your work. And so if you're doing someone's nails, then it's not just I'm doing someone's nails, but rather, and nor is it an opportunity, well, now I've got you stuck here for an hour, I can give you the gospel, but rather seeing that what you're doing is an opportunity to serve others. To be able to do that with all of our jobs, to be, to be able to sit back and go, it's not just a job, it's not just a career, but it's an opportunity to for the kingdom of God to be on display. How am I seeing this job as a means to serving others and to pour ourselves into that? Not just pouring ourselves into a career, but pouring ourselves out for the kingdom of God wherever we may find ourselves. And so Paul says, I'm coming to you. I'm not expecting you to take me out to fancy dinners or to buy me a new suit. I'm coming to give everything for you. I will spend and be spent for you and for the sake of the kingdom. Second thing he says, he says, I'm on my way, but I'm, not, I'm a little bit nervous of what I, what I might find when I get there. Will you be disappointed with me? Will I be disappointed with you? Will we find that we've both changed so much that we don't recognize one another anymore? Perhaps even worse, will, we find that, will I find that you haven't changed at all? Will your expectations of me match with the reality of what there really is? Here's Paul's real concern. He's concerned that he gets to Corinth and finds that they haven't really dealt in any way with the moral mess that he's already written to them about. And so here's his disappointment. He says, I'm concerned that I'm going to get to you and find that you guys are still bogged down in your sin. I guess we could use the family illustration again, right? Dad's on his way to work and he says to the kids, when I come home tonight, I expect your bedrooms to be tidy. And uh, when he gets back home from work, will the rooms still be in a mess? When I get home from work, will I be disappointed? And the thing is, this is, if dad gets home and dad's disappointed, then guess what? The kids are going to be disappointed too. 
because there's going to be no ice cream, there's going to be an early to bed, and we might even have to find new ways to use a wooden spoon. And so when dad's disappointed, the children will be disappointed too. And that's what Paul is saying. When I arrive in Corinth, am I going to find that the mess that I asked you to clean up is still a mess? I'll be disappointed with you, and you'll end up being disappointed with me. And here's, here's what he's concerned that the Corinthians are going to go. They, they, they're going to be disappointed with Paul because Paul does not match what they hope. You see, the, the super apostles that they've had, they're, just, they're, they're happy to pat people on the head and say, oh, morality, it's not a big deal. As long as you have a warm feeling in your heart, you're hundreds. As long as you've had a mystical experience and can somehow claim to have had a vision, you're great. It doesn't matter what you're doing on Tuesday night at the local temple. And Paul is the one who's saying, no, no, those things really are wrong. And so the super apostles are all nice and gooey, and Paul's just a little bit demanding. He expects us not to get involved in gossip and in slander and in debauchery. Paul is just such a killjoy. I mean, really, we just want to have a little bit of fun, right? And Paul says, I'm not being a killjoy. In fact, everything I've said to you is for this one reason. I want to strengthen you. I want to strengthen you. I want to build you up. Everything I've done, everything I said, is for your strengthening. And so Paul is saying, listen, we're concerned for your spiritual well-being. This whole letter, it's not been about us. It's not been about me imposing myself on you. It's not been about me trying to defend myself. The reason I've written this whole thing and the principle under everything that we do, whether it's talking about the need for church discipline or speaking out against those super apostles, it's all been for this purpose, to build you up. And Paul says, others might be eager to tear you down while they're building themselves up. He says, you might think that we've been defending ourselves just in an attempt to build ourselves up, but that's not the case. He says, the sole thing in my mind in this whole thing, in this whole situation, has been to build you up. To, to see your faith strengthened. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but just, just to let you know, in case you're wondering, I don't preach on Sunday mornings because I like the sound of my own voice. My intention is that our church be strengthened. My intention is that our church be built up. My intention is that our church eats their veggies, brushes their teeth, that you clean your room out, that your faith in Jesus is strengthened. And to be honest, these last few months, I think many of you will, dis will agree, it's been difficult for us, hasn't it? It's been difficult for us to stay connected as a church. It's been difficult to sometimes feel as though we're still all part of one body. And when we see each other so seldom, so it's been a tough season for us, and not just for our church, but for churches around the world. I know that some of you have found it difficult to maintain faith in isolation. I know that um, some of you have found weaknesses that you didn't even know existed in you. I'm, I'm still kind of scrambling a little bit to go, what can we do? What more can we do as a church to, to help one another in these unusual times? But I've been preaching and praying that you be strong. I know that sometimes, just like with Paul... When preachers want to speak about strengthening the church, it may lead to disappointment. 
And sometimes that's because no one likes to be told off. No one likes to face discipline. And no one likes to eat their veggies. And yet that's what Paul has been saying here, that sometimes it's necessary to point out the things that are wrong. Do you remember some of the issues back in 1 Corinthians? The total disaster of, of, of all the issues surrounding sexual sin. All the issues that, that revolved around relationships in the church that ended up with people uh, suing one another at court. And Paul has had to step into that and say, that's all wrong. Stop it. He says, and he says, I, I, I tell you these things not because I'm trying to be mean. I'm telling you these things because I, I, I want you to be built up. I know you're disappointed that I'm not taking you aside. I know you're disappointed because I'm not coming alongside you and saying it's okay, carry on in your sin. But Paul says, if I leave you like that, that'll destroy you. And I don't want you destroyed. I want you built up. Can I say how glad I am that our church seems to have avoided many of these issues that Paul has pointed out. And yet again, examine yourself. Ask, we need to ask ourselves this question. How are we seeking to build others up? How are we seeking to strengthen the faith of those around us? Are we, as members of our church, looking for opportunities to encourage one another? It's been hard these last few months because we see one another so seldom. But can you pick up a phone? Can you send a message? Just to let someone know that you're thinking of them, that you're praying for them. Perhaps to even look at this list of problems that Paul makes here, the gossip, the slander, the quarrels, the jealousy, the anger, and not to look at those things and say, yes, they're around us in our church, but to look at them from within and say, are any of these evident in me? Because if they are, then I'm the one that's taking a brick out of the wall and bringing the church down instead of building the church up. Then finally, in those opening verses of chapter 13, Paul says, I'm on my way, and it might get ugly. So remember, I'm not going to be a burden on you. I'm pouring myself out for you. I hope I don't disappoint you. It's about strengthening you. And now Paul says, let's hope this doesn't turn into a fight. I'm coming to serve you. So Paul says, remember the last time I came, I had to issue some warnings, change your behavior, or else... Like dad who'd gone to work and said, when I come home, this place had better look different. Paul says the same thing. I've got, I'm leaving. I'm coming back. When I come back, I'm hoping that it's going to be different. And Paul says, I'm not coming back and going to just listen to hearsay. There'll be reliable witnesses that we're going to have to take into account. And I suspect that part of what he's talking about is it revolves around the sexual sin issues that the Corinthians had endorsed and embraced. And Paul says, if those things haven't been dealt with, well, then when I get there, they will be. And Paul then goes into that whole thing again of, of weakness. And he speaks about the weakness of the cross. And to be sure, the cross does appear, at first glance, to be a sign of weakness. Only the very worst of the worst were executed on a cross. And so the, 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 you know, the people at the time were saying, how could you worship someone who died on a cross? It makes no sense. The cross exposes those who've been crucified for all to see. The cross is all about weakness. The cross and death on it was anything but a sign of blessing and strength and power. It was the very opposite. And yet Paul says, 
There is Jesus, hung on the cross, in weakness, but raised from death to life by the power of God. And so Paul says, we too are weak in him, but filled with power. Power for what? Power to serve. And so Paul says, all of this is to serve you. Not to serve ourselves, not to make sure we're okay, but to serve you. Can I say that I, I suspect that this is not how the super apostles in Corinthians were thinking. Their minds were along the idea of, if there's power to get from God, then let's get it. And let's get that power to have power. If there's power on offer from God, then let's tap into that. And let's use that power to empower ourselves. And I think there's still that attitude in many places around the world today. That God offers power and we should grab hold of that power and be powerful and reveal power. And Paul says, oh, there is power. There is power. And that power comes from weakness. And it's the power that serves others. It's precisely the way in which Jesus himself ministered. Here is the Son of God in human flesh. Surely with all the authority in heaven... And yet, his divinity is veiled, and he serves. He washes the dirty feet of the disciples. He doesn't lounge around and call for more peeled grapes. No, he gives his life as a ransom, and he serves his creation. The full power of Jesus on display as he kneels with a towel around his waist. Who do you serve? In our world of self-service and power plays, who do you serve? How is the power of Jesus on display in you? Do you just want to tap into his power so that you can calm the storms? Or will you share power in weakness and serve? And so here's Paul. I'm coming to visit I'm not going to be a burden. I hope we're not going to be disappointed with each other. I hope this doesn't get ugly. But whatever else the visit might result in, you need to know this, that I'm all for you. I want you and not your stuff. I'll gladly spend and be spent for your sake, for your souls. Everything that I do and everything that I'm about is about strengthening your faith. It's my desire... <clears throat> Not to throw my weight around, not to show off my power and my influence, but to serve. How can we serve you? And you know what? All of that, it's a display of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus gave up all and was spent for you. Jesus doesn't come and demand your possessions. He wants you. And he gladly gave up Everything for your soul. He paid a king's ransom. He came and found us in our moral mess, in our sin, and rescued and redeemed us from that and raised us up, built us up, seated us in heavenly places. He came to serve. And we respond to him and to his church in just the same way. Because we have received so much from him, we can freely give all away. That all we have and all we are is given for the sake of the gospel and the glory of his name. And so I would appeal to you this morning.
spend and serve and strengthen the body around for the glory of Jesus and his name. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, this morning we want to give you thanks for our church. I give you thanks, Lord, for every member, every, every participant, everyone who comes on a Sunday, everyone who, even over these last few months, all those that have pitched up for Facebook online, those who, and, and even those who haven't been able to. Thank you for our church and for the different ways in which the people of our church serve and seek to serve one another. Thank you for the way in which uh, we see evidence of people seeking to, to strengthen one another and build one another up. Lord, spare us from the disaster of gossip and slander and the, just the ugliness of the moral mess that Corinth found themselves in. May you build and strengthen our church, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you so much for those who, who pour out their lives for the sake of the gospel. Lord, forgive us when we find so many other um, foolish things to spend ourselves on. To spend what we have on the things that will not satisfy. May we spend and be spent for your kingdom and for your glory and for your great namesake. Amen. We're going to just take a five, maybe ten minute break um, just to shut down Facebook and whatever and open up on Zoom. So if you look in about probably in about five minutes time, you will find us on Zoom for our church AGM. It's been sent out in an email to church members. It's uh, the link is on our WhatsApp group for everybody who's on that group. Um, and hopefully we will see you all in the next few minutes.